Alright, hello and welcome to another unexciting episode of Hashtag Pistons. I'm Joe, I'm your host. Um, been a little bit. Uh, obviously, last week was the the holiday week, so I just kind of decided to take it off. And then um, earlier this week, I didn't get any because... So, I mentioned this in a post the other day, but I'm going to be in Detroit all weekend. Um, I'm going with a friend, got some family, lives over there, that we're going to be staying with. Um, so we're going across the state, going to the Red Wings game on Friday night, going to the Pistons game on Saturday night, and then we'll come back on Sunday probably. But So I'm going to be gone all weekend. So as a result of that, I picked up some extra hours at work and such. So uh, I've just been, you know, just picked up a few extra things so as that could work. Um, so missed the podcast earlier this week, and then today's is a day late. And so I apologize about that. Hopefully next week we're all the way back on schedule. Um, but on the plus side, I think we got a lot to talk about here. And, um, you know, hopefully hopefully we can talk about a lot. And there, there's, cert- <laughs> there's certainly plenty to talk about, and I intend to actually go pretty far into it. So this is not going to be a short, wimpy podcast today. Hopefully to at least a little bit make up for um, my absence. So. Uh, we'll just hop right in. Um, so this will probably be, I'm recording this on Thursday morning. It'll probably get posted Friday morning. So we'll hop right into um, the game two nights ago now, um, probably by the time this gets posted. But the Heat game, uh, <laughs> it's it's a rough game to lose because of the fact that uh, it was just it was just a frustrating game because the Heat shot so well from three. And there were a few things that the Pistons just consistently could not get. You know, they just they could not get it to to succeed, and um, they struggled to defend a bit. But more than anything else, the Heat just hit a bunch of threes. The Pistons were without Andre Drummond. Obviously, Reggie Jackson still out as well. Avery Bradley was hot garbage, and they still were in the game. And that makes it a little bit. You know, it's kind of funny how it works out because you're playing with house money essentially, right? Like, you're missing Andre Drummond. You're still missing four of your rotation players, including your best player, Andre Drummond. I think pretty much at this point, everybody's pretty much in agreement. I've said this the last two years, but pretty much everybody's in agreement at this point. Andre Drummond is the Pistons' best player by a pretty wide margin. And you're without him, and, you know, the another one of your starters just came back from a long break, looked rusty. And so it's like, you know, it's kind of playing with house money. You're not that worried about it. But then when you get close anyways and still lose, it makes it almost extra frustrating because it's like, ah, could have stole that one, and we didn't. But that's, a, I guess, another thing. But um, within that, though, Avery Bradley obviously was hot garbage. I'm not all that worried about it. He didn't necessarily play a super terrible game. He just was way off. Um, I mentioned this in my recap, but, you know, 15 points on 20 equivalents with four assists against one turnover, that's not, like, an absolutely terrible line. It's not a good one, but you look at that, it's like, okay, that's not terrible. It was worse than that. He had a bunch of really open shots and just missed them. Uh, upon further review, I looked back, I didn't watch the whole game, but I went, I went back and looked at a few different things. And um, I'm a little bit less frustrated with his... Um, with his shot selection now than I was um, last night because he did not attack the hoop very much. But went back and looked, and um, I should have, honestly, I shouldn't have even needed to go back and look. I should have just known this because it's not a big secret. The Heat are a super analytically driven team. So defensively, they really, they basically, they totally sell out to give you mid-range jumpers, right? So, like, that's one of the reasons that Luke Kennard and Dwight Bikes both had really nice games is they're both really good mid-range jump shooters. Avery Bradley's a good mid-range jump shooter, too. I still would like him to maybe try and force the issue going to the hoop a bit, but they were giving him plenty of space to pull up for those shots. They're shots he can hit. He's had some really good games where he hits them. He just missed them, and that's the problem, is that he had mostly good looks. He just could not finish them, and that's what made it such a brutal game offensively for him. And then, of course, on the other side of the ball, he didn't have a great impact, but nobody really did. The Pistons just struggled defensively. Um, and that's another thing that makes it especially frustrating is that um, the Pistons' biggest problem defensively was that their bigs, um, whether it be Boban, um, Moreland, or even when they went with Anthony Tolliver essentially at center for a while, 
um, particularly at the end of the game, is that they just were not able to hedge effectively. And, you know, it's it's frustrating because it's just, if they go, so if they hedge on the screen, and I guess, I guess you know, I, there's sometimes people that you use a basketball term and you just assume everybody knows. Hedging on a screen is when the defense, so a guy comes up and sets a screen, and oh, I'm making hand motions, but and then the big guy, so the guy who's guarding the screen center, then comes up and stands sort of on the other side of the screen so the ball handler doesn't have a free run into the lane. That's what hedging a screen means. It's not like a full-on double team, but it's close. So, you know, so like when Andre Drummond comes up and he's all the way up at the three-point line, hands out to keep the ball handler from getting into the lane. That's what hedging on a screen is, okay, more or less. And so... um so the Pistons bigs, if they win and hedged hard enough to keep uh, Goran Dragic out of the lane, Kelly Olynyk was rolling totally free to the hoop. And then if they stuck close enough that Kelly Olynyk wasn't rolling totally free to the hoop or popping for an open three, then Goran Dragic was getting into the lane at will. And, you know, it's frustrating because it's one of those things that it's just, it's frustrating because the Heat did it time and time again, and the Pistons just could not stop it. But it's also frustrating because it's just a matter of the Pistons just did not have the personnel for it. Um, obviously, Boban is going to struggle with that. Eric Moreland was going to struggle with that. Um, I was hoping for a little bit better out of him, in particular, Anthony Tolliver. Once again, that's a tough guard to make. Goran Dragic is very good. Uh, Kelly Olynyk isn't awesome, but he's very good at that. That's basically what his value is. He's done that to a few different teams in his career. Uh, most famously, he... Did he was that in the conference finals last year? I think it was, right? Yeah. It was in the conference finals. No, it was against Washington last year. He scored like twenty some points and beat the Heat and beat the Wizards like single handedly in a game. Like he's done that before. He's not the Pistons are not the first team to be victimized by Kelly Olinick in this way. But it's still frustrating because hedging on screens and getting back and being effective at it is something that Andre Drummond really excels at. And, I mean, there's a chance that with the way the Heat were shooting, it wouldn't have mattered. But just in a vacuum, I'd look at it and say, if Andre Drummond is in this game, the Pistons are winning handily. Because the thing that continually killed the Pistons is something that Andre Drummond would more or less take out of the game as an option. So that makes it particularly frustrating, given that. But, um, and, you know, a lot of people were suggesting that were airing some frustrations that the Pistons didn't make adjustments there. And once again, the answer is like, what adjustment are you going to make? If they're sticking with Olenek, um, Goran Dragic is getting free into the lane, and he caused all sorts of trouble. He had an awesome game, by the way. What did his final line end up being? He ended up with 24 points on 21 equivalents with 13 assists against just three turnovers. He had an awesome game. And then Kelly Olenek... His 25 points, 13, wow, I didn't realize he had 13 rebounds, 3 assists. I mean, shoots 11 of 15 from the field, didn't shoot any free throws. So 25 points on 15 shots. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That just makes me angry. But, I mean, just when they hedged up far enough to keep Dragic out of the lane, they couldn't get back in time to stop Olenek. And if they stuck with Olenek, they could not really hang with Dragic. It just... They didn't have the personnel for it. And um, the problem is that this is something that, you know, it really highlighted sort of the deficiencies of the other guys defensively. Um, Avery Bradley, once again, like I said, he didn't seem quite on his game defensively, although I'm not sure. I, I would guess that he probably was not as... He was probably better than it looked, but because of the fact that um, there wasn't... The Heat just don't have a super high-volume ball handler for him to harass... And the closest thing they have to that is Goran Dragic, and he can't switch on to him most of the time because Ishmith isn't big enough to go on to other um, shooting guards, to go on to, you know, shooting guards. Although, in this case, actually, maybe they should have done that because Dragic is big too. But that's a that's another thing. But, um, you know, when you, they go to those lineups where everybody can shoot and everyone kind of knows how to pass up, then... It's really difficult to guard, and everybody needs to be in sync. And with the bigs um, being... And once again, it started with those three guys that were the big guys. They were the biggest problem. 
But then the other defenders, particularly Tobias Harris and Ish Smith, um, they just they're not good enough, fast enough, smart enough, um, quick enough to be able to cover up those mistakes. Like Tobias Harris, so when Kelly Olynyk is rolling free to the hoop, Tobias Harris is the one who has to keep coming down to try and keep him from getting a free look at the hoop. And he makes that rotation most of the time, but it's slow enough that Olenek is getting right to the hoop. He had like three or four baskets, I think, where he had it literally right under the hoop, and Tobias Harris is standing there with his hands up, and it's like, yeah, I guess he made the rotation. But Olenek literally catches it, he's like, I guess I'll literally like just kind of, you know, <laughs> gently place the ball in the hoop because that's how close I am. And it's just it's just not fast enough. And I don't want to be too hard on Tobias because I think he, even with the defense, I think he had a really nice game. But it just, it really highlighted that, you know, <laughs> he's just he's just not a fast enough, quick thinking enough, able, to, able enough defender to really make up for those things. And that's just, it, that's rough. It sucks, but that's what happens sometimes, I suppose. And it really highlights that the Pistons really need Andre Drummond, <laughs> Andre Drummond to play. They need that guy around. They need him to be able to do his thing. And, yeah, so it's frustrating, but I'm not sure what adjustment there really was that the Pistons could have made to uh, really effectively stop that. And for what it's worth, despite that, they stuck with the Heat right to the end if the Pistons shoot just a little bit better. I mean, if Avery Bradley hits a couple more open shots, then the Pistons maybe still win this game despite it. So um, I'm not going to rag on it too much. It's frustrating, but the reality is that I'm not sure what they could have done. And then also, of course, is the fact that, um, you know, it's a regular season game. You're not going to totally overhaul your defensive schemes in a regular season game. That's just the reality of the situation. Um and, you know, I didn't actually have this written down as something to touch on here real quick, but I'm going to anyways, just because I already started on it. Tobias Harris really played a nice game, I think. Um, I wouldn't have minded if he'd gotten a few more shots, but all in all, how many how many equivalents did he get up? He got up, let's see, 13. He got 16, which, you know, I'd prefer him to be closer to 20 with Reggie Jackson out, but that's okay. He got 19 points. And once again, he did it the hard way. And um, that's the sort of game they need from him, is that just be the guy who's able to consistently go and get them tough buckets. And that's what he did tonight. What was his usage rate, I wonder? I don't know. I probably shouldn't even bother to look this up. Um, Yeah, I'm not going to bother to look that up. But he really, and it was consistent throughout the game. Um, He didn't hit a three. He only took two. Some people were saying that he should have taken more. But that actually, against the Heat, once again, that's not actually really the case they really charge out hard to the three-point line. He took what the defense was giving them, was giving him, and he was effective getting into the paint. And that's the benefit. That's a benefit of the way he shot three-pointers so far this year, right? Is that because he's been so effective, they're charging really hard out to him on the three-point line. And he's an effective enough score in the mid-range and at the hoop that when you're doing that, a really hard charge at him at the three-point line, he's going to have a pretty easy time getting past you. He also, once again, drew quite a few fouls last night, which was nice. Um, I'm gonna, I am gonna double check this. He's drawn some more fouls recently. Stan Van Gundy said in a press game conference that um, um, getting to the line more is something that they've asked him to focus on a little bit recently, and uh, it looks like it's paying off a bit. Let's see here. He shot eight against the Heat. Only shot two, I guess it's not that much of an uptick. It is a bit, though, because he shot 10 against New York, four against Indiana, four against Orlando. So I guess it's not that much of an uptick, I suppose. I guess I just remembered that, um, those 10 free throws against the Knicks. But, well, what's he averaging per game? He's averaging, he's only averaging two and a half free throws per game, actually. So even though it's not a huge increase, those ones where he's shooting four, and that is an uptick over the last, what is that, one, two, three, three, four, f- three, four, five games. So that is definitely an uptick, actually. All right, I take it all back. That's an uptick. Um, so, yeah, that's good. Um, 
And it just it's sort of indicative of that. He's being a little bit more aggressive getting to the hoop. Um, he's being a little bit more assertive. And, you know, one downside of Tobias Harris is that he's never a guy who's he's just not a guy who's going to really be a, you know, score, you know, 15 straight points for you, take over the game kind of guy. He's never been that guy, and I don't expect that to change. Um, he does. He's done that a couple of times this year where he's just been really hot from deep, and he's hit a bunch of threes. But as far as, you know, just going and getting his own buckets, that's not something that he's really been. That's just not the kind of guy he is as a player. And that's something that's always been kind of a knock on him. But that said, he's still, I mean, you know, he's just, he, he's playing the right way. Since um, since Reggie Jackson went down against the Knicks, um, we'll count the Knicks game too. He scored 24 against the Knicks, 30 against Indiana, 21 against Orlando, only 12 against the Spurs. But once again, you're getting guarded by Kawhi Leonard. And he had five assists against just two turnovers in that game. So he was taken with the defense, gave him then against the Heat, 19 points, two turnovers, two two assists. Um, One thing also to note from this stretch, and this isn't just since Reggie Jackson got hurt, but but I think that he's starting to get more comfortable as a passer. Um, Here, I'm going to actually figure this out. So in this stretch... Um, he's averaging, he's averaging three assists per game against 1.6 turnovers per game since Reggie Jackson got hurt. Um, and that's not a huge improvement, but on the season, he's averaging 1.8 assists against 1.1 turnovers. Um, so that's a pretty good improvement. And the reality is that, and this has always been the case with Tobias, is that he's he's been a bad passer, right? There's no way around it. He's been an objectively bad passer his whole career. And it's been a pretty big hamper to his game. Um, this year, the most obvious example I can think of was the first time the Pistons played the 76ers. And they tried to get the Sixers because the, they played the Knicks the night before, if I recall correctly. Yeah, where Tobias Harris scored 31 points. And um, they they did a lot of that damage to the Knicks by having Reggie Jackson and Tobias Harris essentially run pick and rolls. Tobias was getting switches, and then he was just dominating whoever he got a lot. And, he, and they did that consistently several times towards the end of the game. They tried to do that again against the Sixers, but the Sixers just sent hard double teams at him every time, and he's not a good enough passer to beat those. And it, was a, and it really hampered his game, and he had a bad game against the Sixers. But... You know, he's making enough of a show of it right now that I think, once again, I, he's never going to be a good passer. But he's sort of getting comfortable enough, I think, that he's at least occasionally looking for the very basic passes. He's throwing some lobs to Andre out of the pick and roll. He's hit shooters in the corner a few times. Like, it seems pretty clear that they've made an effort to tell him, okay, Reggie Jackson is out. We need you to be at to be able to hit at least a few good passes per game because you cannot be one-dimensional because if you are, teams are going to shut you down, and if teams shut you down, we don't have any good scoring options, and that's the truth. If Tobias Harris gets shut down, the Pistons are not going to have a good time scoring the basketball. That's just the reality. So they probably told him, you need to figure out some facilitating. And they gave, It looks to me like they gave him some really basic cues to watch for against defenses, and if he can hit some basic passes, that's great. And it's one of those things that it's not necessarily a huge improvement, but it's an important enough one because he's been so bad at it that it could really unlock the rest of his game in a big way. I mean, it's not as drastic a difference, but it's a little bit... I've compared it before to Andre Drummond's free throw shooting. Is that even though... So he's shooting, what, 64% or something like that on the year this from the line? I will look that up. 62.6% from the line for Andre Drummond. That's not obviously not a great mark, but because it was so bad before, and obviously that's a much bigger improvement than Tobias Harris's passing over five games, like not even close. But it's so important to get to a certain level of competency that it opens up so much of his game. It's the same sort of thing on a smaller scale, of course, with Tobias Harris's passing, is that 
even though it's not a huge improvement, it's enough of an improvement towards a sort of basic competency at it to where teams hopefully are going to have a tougher time just totally overloading against him because it's like he's not going to be able to make the right passes consistently. If he can make the really obvious passes, teams won't be able to overload against him consistently, which is going to make him have a lot easier time scoring the basketball. So I'm really that's a really good development. Hopefully it's something that keeps up. Um, it's entirely possible that it's kind of a fluke, but I'm looking through his game logs this year. There's really no other stretch where he where he did this this year. Mostly it's all there's it's all one assist, one assist with the occasional spattering of zeros and an occasional spattering of four or five. Like, I don't know, maybe it's just a mirage, but it just seems to me that it's something that he's been looking for more this year, I guess, which is um, there's been times where he's had a few assists in a game, but it's mostly just sort of like, well, he just happened to, you know, give a dribble handoff where a guy hit it. It seems like over the past stretch, he's had more assists where he's actually the one creating it and making a good pass for the assist, if that makes sense. So um, we'll see if it holds up, but it's something to keep an eye on at the very least. Um, and, yeah, so hopefully he keeps playing like this. If he does, that's going to make the Pistons have a much easier time without Reggie Jackson. And also just great to see him potentially sort of step into the role of being a consistent, you know, sort of first option in the offense. Um yeah, so that's about all I'll say about the Heat game. Basically, the Heat shot really well. The Pistons struggled to defend it, but they, considering all the guys they were without and the fact that the Heat were just shooting really well, it's a pretty decent performance by the Pistons. And then when you combine that with the Spurs game, so the both games without Reggie Jackson so far, hard to complain too much. Obviously, the Spurs are really good. The Heat are just pretty good. But the aggregate there is two pretty good teams. They beat one, close loss to the other one, and, and the reality is they beat the Spurs pretty handily. Um, so it's hard to complain too much about that. It's worrisome just because it and it's going to hurt extra whenever the Pistons lose close games as long as Reggie Jackson is out because you know that there's going to be a few games where they're going to get beaten handily, where it's just they're not going to be able to consistently create offense. Like It'll happen soon. In all likelihood, Tobias Harris isn't going to be able to generate offense for himself. He's going to have an off night, and Reggie Bullock is not going to shoot his hit out of his mind from deep, and the Pistons are just not going to be able to create offense, and they're going to get blown out. And the end result is that when you have an opportunity to win a game, you really, really need to be able to win it because there's going to be you're basically if they want to keep afloat, they're going to need to hope that they have good luck in close games, right? that they're essentially that their record is going to be better than their net rating, if that makes sense. Because they're going to lose some games by a lot of points. And they're not going to blow many people out right now because they just do not have the offensive firepower to do it. So they're going to need to win close games. And that makes it particularly frustrating to lose against the Heat. But all in all, two games, hard to complain too much. You beat the Spurs handily. You're right there with the Heat on a night where the Heat shoot really well from deep and you're without Andre Drummond. There's still pretty good hope that the Pistons are going to be able to stay in decent form without Reggie Jackson. So, yeah. Um, one thing within that, Dwight Bikes. Um, I mean, really had a good game against the Heat. Uh, let's see, what did he put up? Against the Heat, he put up 14 points on 12 shots. Against the Spurs, he was quieter. He had four points on five shots, also had three assists. Um, went positive in both games, I believe. Yep, against the against the Heat, he went plus one on the night. Against the Spurs, he went plus, plus two. So, I mean, I don't know how, how good he'll be in the long term, but and through two games, it looks pretty promising. And part of it is that you have to remember when you've got a guy who's in a situation that he is in, right? So two-way contract or before this year, you know, essentially a guy pulled out of the G League, out of wherever, you know, 10-day contract type, who's pressed into service due to injuries. Um, is that 
as long as they play well enough that they're not single-handedly, you know, submarining your team, you kind of live with that. And honestly, against the Heat, he was actually pretty good. And one thing that should give the Pistons at least a little bit of hope that he could perhaps keep up this level of play um, is that there's really no sample size with him before this. And when you think about the sorts of guys that they can play in the NBA, but they fall through and don't get a chance until later or maybe never do at all, it's usually a guy, you know, Dwight Bikes is sort of the mold for that sort of guy. Once again, he's listed at 6'3". I do not buy that at all. The guy is six foot, maybe six foot one. He's not that big. He is undersized. But undersized types who are who are more or less shoot-first point guards. Those are the sort of guys that slip through because they're going to have to prove that they can create against NBA-level defenders. And even though it's like you see them in lower leagues, it's like, man, they're really tearing it up in the G League or in France or in China or in wherever they may be playing. You know, they're really playing well over there. But the reality is, is that it's like teams are not going to be quick to take a chance on them because it's like I don't think he's going to be able to create against NBA defenses because he's too small. And those are the sort of guys that they fall through the cracks. You know, not a big recruit. Bikes played at junior college for two years, played at Marquette for two years then. He, and for what's worth, he did okay at Marquette, I think. I, I, didn't pay any, I didn't know who he was when he played there. I'd never heard of him before. <laughs> but um, he, he, uh, he started his senior year, but he certainly didn't put up huge numbers, so he went undrafted. And he hasn't played at all in the NBA the last year. So, like, just as a, I suppose, the point I'm trying to make, okay, Let's just say that um, the Pistons had taken Jordan Crawford instead, and he was in Bikes' position, and he performed similarly through two games that Bikes has, where it's like, yeah, he's played pretty well. Um, We know how the Jordan Crawford experiment ends, all right? Even if he's played well for a few games, and maybe you go, well, hopefully he just kind of keeps hitting some shots and he stays afloat. But if it keeps going long-term, you know how that ends. It ends with him being an inefficient chucker who doesn't play defense. That's how it always ends. He's had his shots in the NBA. People have given him ample opportunities to prove that he can play. He can't. He is not really an NBA caliber player. That's just the reality of the situation. With Bikes, you look at it and you go, maybe he's actually just good enough where he can create against NBA-level defenders, and he's actually a fairly competent backup point guard, and he's just fallen through because of his size. That's entirely possible. So there's some hope that he can keep it up. The biggest worry with him is that he wasn't, he hasn't actually been, let me make sure that I've got it. I will bring up the numbers. Is that in the G League, he hasn't actually been that efficient a scorer. Um, this year, his true shooting percentage with the drive in only 10 games is 22 point, not 22, oh my gosh. Um, last two years ago with in the, in the G league, he, his true shooting percentage was 52.9%. His career true shooting percentage in the G league is 54%. That's not a great mark. And once again, the last two, the last two years he's been in the G league, he wasn't in last year. So then, so there's this year and then two years ago is right at 52%, little above that. Like that's not a great mark. And I'm generally speaking, as a rule, if you're a fairly high-volume ball handler scorer, 53% is kind of the threshold for where you're allowed to be a you're sort of allowed to be a high-volume scorer or not, right? And he's a little bit below that in the G League, and that makes me a little nervous because if his efficiency drops much at all from there, as an NBA player, he may well end up just being inefficient. But right now, so far, so good. Um, he's done well enough that I'm intrigued to see what he can do longer term. Um, I've in particular been impressed with his defensive effort. Um, he really plays hard. He's pretty strong for his size. He's pretty quick. Uh, he's very active. Um, I'm really, I've really been pretty impressed by the way he plays defense. I don't know how that will hold up. Um, part of it is probably that, you know, this is 
just to be completely honest, this is probably his best chance to try and stick in the NBA right now. You know, getting real rotation minutes on a playoff team, or at least for now, (laughs) playoff team on a good team that's trying to win games, that's as good a chance as he's ever had. And he hasn't even been in the NBA the last two years. He hasn't played a game in the NBA for the last two years. Literally out of the league. And so, you know, there's a decent chance that he... um... Oh, right. Oops. So there's a decent chance that he's prob- that this could actually, if he plays well, he could well get himself a real contract. This is as good a chance as he's ever had and likely is going to get. So it makes sense that he's absolutely just going to play balls to the walls every single second he's on the floor. And within that, that helps your defense. So we'll see, like, if time goes on and he starts to maybe get a little bit more comfortable Maybe that his defensive intensity will drop a little bit, but for now, looks pretty good. Um, so then the next thing within that is um, Langston Galloway, who got a DMP against the Heat. Um, he clearly has is not going to be getting <clears throat> my nose got a little stuffy. Sorry, is not going to be receiving the backup point guard duties without Reggie Jackson. Um, they tried it for a game and. <laughs> It didn't go well. I don't know if that. I don't know if Stan Van Gundy, um, if Stan Van Gundy decided to change him from that as a result of that game, or if that was always the plan they just wanted to get. Because even right away when it happened, when Reggie Jackson got hurt, um, they said, you know, we're bringing up Dwight Bikes to speed because he obviously hasn't been doing a lot with the team. He's been in the G League most of the year. So they said, we're bringing him up to speed. So it may well be that the plan was always Bikes is going to get the backup shooting, the backup point guard minutes, and Galloway only got that one game because he was, they weren't ready to put Bikes in because he wasn't familiar enough with the offense and whatnot. That's entirely possible. But um, there's no denying that it's not a great thing. I mean, I don't know that it's a horrible thing, but it's not good that Langston Galloway got a DMP last night um, against the Heat, and he got another one against the Knicks a little bit ago, and uh, that's just, he's, now, on one hand, he's gotten a few sort of randomly, looking through his game log for this year, he's gotten, what, one, two, three, and then less, the Heat game makes four DMPs, and they all kind of seem random to me, um, but here's the thing that kind of makes it worrisome a little bit, and also the thing that, um, this was sort of the worry when the Pistons signed him, right, or at least when the season, coming into the season, um, is that I'm not sure that there's enough, it's sort of, it almost, by signing him, drafting Luke Kennard, and trading for Avery Bradley, there's a certain extent to which you're almost you almost set yourself up for failure with somebody, if that makes sense. Because either because so Avery Bradley is starting, obviously. There's no question about that, right? Um But within that, though, so Avery Bradley's starting. Sorry, my mind I, I'm scrolling through to make sure that my timeline is right. I apologize in my So um, so Avery Bradley's starting, and then, now, Luke Kennard has played a lot of minutes at small forward this year, but there's no question at all, right, that his long-term future is going to be at shooting guard, in all likelihood, right? So, Avery Bradley is starting, obviously you traded for him hoping to sign him long-term, maybe he will, maybe he won't, but that's certainly got to be the hope, you don't trade for a guy like that without hoping you can keep him long-term, but... So you trade. So you've got Avery Bradley as your starter. Now with Langston Galloway and Luke Kennard fighting for minutes off the bench, because of the fact that Langston Galloway was signed to a three-year contract, you're basically kind of setting yourself up for failure. Because either your first-round pick, who you're really high on, is not going to be getting minutes, or the guy that you just signed to a three-year contract worth seven million a year, which isn't a huge amount, but that's a real. That's not a nothing, though, right? So that happens, and then, so one of those two guys is not going to be playing. And 
the thing that makes it even worse is that Stanley Johnson wasn't able to hold down the starting small forward spot, and then Reggie Bullock has come in and played awesome. So now, one of those three guys, Stanley Johnson, Luke Kennard, or Langston Galloway, is not going to be getting playing time when they're all when they are all healthy, and <laughs> uh, that's not that's not ideal. Um, and you know, this, I'm spurred on a little bit into this because Duncan Smith and, um, whichever one of the D, whichever one of the Detroit bad boys guys was manning their Twitter account. And then also, um, I think, uh, a couple other of the beat writers got in on it too, arguing about the fact that Galloway got a DMP. Now, Duncan Smith makes a big deal, has made a big deal about that the Pistons hard cap themselves to bring this guy in and such. Um, I'm not as worried about that as he is. Like, I mean, the reality is that they were going to hard cap themselves with somebody, so I'm not sure why you're necessarily specifically worried about Galloway. And even now, I don't think that Galloway is a bad contract. It's not a great value contract, but $7 million a year for a guy who's a pretty, who's a rotation player, even off the bench, like, that's not bad by any stretch, I don't think. So I'm not stressed about that, but the reality is you don't want, it's not a great, it's just not a great look to have Galloway or Kennard getting DMPs right now, particularly because Kennard has played well and he's your first round pick. But here's the thing I think that makes it where the Galloway signing could end up having made sense at the time. Um, Because so when you sign him, the hope is probably that he's going to be the backup shooting guard. Once again, then you've got the situation where either him or Kennard are not going to be getting minutes, neither of which are ideal. And once again, because Galloway signed for three years, I mean, you know, so like, for instance, okay, let's just say Galloway had signed a one-year contract. Then, who cares? He's here for a year. You've got him as insurance in case Kennard isn't ready. And then he's gone after that. Hopefully Kennard can play or you find some other person, right? That's what you do. But because he signed for three years... Like, if Kennard's not ready to play in three years, then <laughs> there's a problem. And so one of those two guys is going to be in trouble. The best argument for that the Galloway signing made good sense and maybe still does is that what if the Pistons knew full well, which there's been some indications that they kind of did, they knew full well KCP was not coming back. Like, what if before the offseason even really had started. Like, the moment the regular season ended, the Pistons knew KCP's not coming back. Like, he's not. It's not going to work out. And there's some indications that that's true. Some of the beat writers have kind of hinted at that. Um, Nothing's been said blatantly. The closest thing to a blatant admission to this is that um, it's been openly reported, it was openly reported by several people that the Pistons made an offer Allegedly, it was a five-year, $80 million offer, although that's been somewhat disputed. Um, But regardless of what the offer was, the Pistons made an offer right away at the opening of free agency, and they didn't hear back from KCP or his team at all. Like, didn't hear anything back. All right? So that said, there's a pretty good chance that the Pistons knew full well KCP isn't coming back, and they didn't know that Avery, what if within that, they didn't know Avery Bradley's going to be available. So, you know KCP isn't coming back. So, and you also know you're probably going to draft a shooting guard, whether it be Kennard or Mitchell. Obviously, they picked Kennard, but they also, it wasn't a secret leading up to the draft. They liked Mitchell as well. They were probably going to draft one of those two guys. So, you know that that's coming, and you also know KCP is leaving. Then, you sign Langston Galloway because, well, KCP is probably gone, we don't know how we feel about having to make a rookie start at shooting guard for us. So we're going to sign Langston Galloway, who, not awesome, but fairly reliable veteran guy. You kind of know what you're getting out of him. He can start at shooting guard until whoever's the draft pick. Obviously, Luke Kennard ends up being the draft pick. They signed him. Jeez, I don't even remember. Is the draft? This is what I was trying to figure out, and I stopped looking because I was messing with my, um, with my, with my thought process here. But um, was the um, they they drafted Kennard before Galloway? All right, 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 right. Okay, so they draft Kennard, and then 
so you're heading into free agency. You've got Kennard, and you already know KCP is leaving, but you don't know for sure that um, Avery Bradley is going to be available. Perhaps you've heard rumors of such a thing, but you don't know for sure, right? Let's just say that. Within that, then, you sign Langston Galloway and basically say, okay, maybe Kennard is ready to go right away and we can start him. Maybe he's not ready. Basically, Galloway gives you the flexibility to um, ease Kennard in, and then if Kennard is a, is re- is um, good enough to start right away, then that's great. And then Galloway is your backup shooting guard, and that's it. You go from there. And then, so you sign Galloway, and then a little bit ago, a little bit later, a little bit ago, and then just a little bit later, Avery Bradley suddenly becomes available. I don't remember how... It happened pretty soon after another, I know. But I don't remember exactly how quick it was. But regardless, if that's the way it happens... So you sign Lynx Galloway with that thought process of that, okay, we've got this rookie. We know KCP is gone. We've got Luke Kennard. We want to... But we don't want to put Kennard in a situation where he has to be able to start and play from the get-go. We want to have some sort of a veteran presence who can sort of ease Kennard into the role, and then also, if Kennard, whenever Kennard is ready, who can then fall back and be the backup. Then, that makes sense. Then, a few days later, suddenly Avery Bradley is available for trade, and the Pistons have the perfect asset in Marcus Morris and a guy who is a rotation wing player on a stupid cheap contract that is perfect for the Celtics to get and the Celtics, the Pistons jump on it and say, you know what, we've got these other plans, but whatever, we're going for this. This is what, and this is too good an opportunity to pass up, so we're going to trade for Avery Bradley, and we're going to get him, right? Once again, this makes this all make more sense, once again, because if you already know KCP is leaving, then the Avery Bradley trade is suddenly a lot less, um, a lot less risky. Because, so at the time, and I'm pretty sure I even said it in my post for meeting Avery Bradley, is that essentially, I, I, I literally said this. I know this for a fact that I said this in the post, right? I, is that I said at the time, you basically have to look at it as not just that the Pistons traded Marcus Morris, but they essentially traded KCP for Avery Bradley as well because they let KCP go because of the fact that they traded for Avery Bradley, right? And that's something that made it a little bit you know, risky is that you had a chance to sign KCP long-term potentially, you didn't take it, you took Avery Bradley for a year. What if, once again, they knew full well KCP was not coming back? They were not re-signing him. In that case, Avery Bradley makes a lot more sense than he did already. He already made a lot of sense for various reasons. I even wrote a bit on it before the season, which is that, you know, it allows them to have one more year before they commit to this team to sort of see how they do and such. But that's another thing altogether that I'm not going to get into. You can go read my bit on it. Um, but it, it was called Why Avery Bradley Makes Sense for the Present and Future of the Pistons, if you want to go read that, if you missed it. It's on Hashtag Basketball. But um, if you already know that KCP is leaving, then the idea of Bradley potentially essentially being a rental is a lot less risky because, now, do we miss Marcus Morris? Yes, absolutely. Marcus Morris was a, is a good player. Um, he would have shored up the small forward spot. Now, with the way Bullock has been playing, makes you miss him less, but there's no way around it. Marcus Morris, good player, helped the team. The Pistons would be better with Marcus Morris on their team. But And also, he's on a great contract, and he's on the contract for one more year than Avery Bradley is. But I don't think anyone would argue that Marcus Morris is some super integral core piece. Good player, like having him on the team. But not a huge deal to lose him, once again, particularly given the way that Reggie Bullock has played. And then if Stanley Johnson can figure out his offense at all, you're not missing Marcus Morris in a huge way. So then, even if Avery Bradley walks this summer, then essentially the idea is they're in the exact same spot that they would have been this year, which is your shooting guards are Langston Galloway and Luke Kennard. And once again, Galloway's presence essentially allows you to ease Kennard into it. Now, Given the way the season has gone right now, I would not be surprised if Luke Kennard would win that starting battle over Langston Galloway. But basically, it makes it so as you don't have to use him right away in a big role. So, I mean, if you consider it like that, suddenly it all makes a lot more sense. 
I don't know if that's the case or not. Um, and that's the thing that's always a little bit tough to tough about um, judging teams when they're making these sorts of moves is that nothing happens in a vacuum. So, you know, in a vacuum, signing Langston Galloway, he makes your team better. He's made the Pistons better. He's a good signing. In a vacuum, trading Marcus Morris for Avery Bradley is a good move. But we don't know what the sort of outside, what else is going on. And basically, if KCP, if when the when the offseason started, the Pistons had a real chance at retaining KCP, and they knew it, and when they traded for Avery Bradley, they then essentially were making an active decision, nope, we are not going to retain KCP, even though we could. We're going to let him walk. We're going to take Avery Bradley. Then, in that case, then Langston Galloway makes a lot less sense because you've got three shooting guards on your roster who hopefully are going to be able to get minutes. That's not a good situation to be in. But if they already knew that KCP was leaving, no matter what, they were not retaining him, then it makes a lot more sense. So, And once again, the thing that I'd say is that even if they intend to re-sign Avery Bradley this offseason, he's an unrestricted free agent. If the guy leaves, you'll suddenly be a lot more thankful that Langston Galloway is around. So that's another thing. Um, oh, geez, we're already at 46 minutes. Oh, well, I said we're going to go for a while, so we're going to go for a while. Um, so the last thing that I'm going to touch on then is um, the idea of, is the our trade options, which is um, something that people have been talking about quite a bit, of course. Uh, so we're going to talk about it. Um and, of course, it surrounds around potentially the point guard situation. Um, one special shout-out to Trusk Funds. Um, he asked me what my thoughts on it was. I gave a little bit of a talk. I'm going to write a piece about this, I think. Um, I think that's going to be my next one. I'm not sure what I'm going to write about next because I'd started one on um, on Henry Ellenson where I was looking at some film and talking about him, but then Reggie Jackson got hurt, so I wrote about that, and now it's kind of all caught up in that. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but regardless, I'm going to write a piece on this, but there's a few different layers to my thoughts on, um, what the Pistons should trade for or if they should trade at all. And basically it all revolves around what is the realistic timeline for Jackson's return. So obviously it's a grade three sprain, but ankle sprains are goofy, tricky things to really know for sure, right? It sounds like it is not unrealistic that Reggie Jackson could actually come back after two months, right? That's an optimistic timeline, but it's op- it's realistically optimistic. It's not foolish optimism. So, like, if that's a reality, and they, they're looking at it, and they say, I think we think he's going to be back in that amount of time, and he'll be good to go then, then I'd say there's no way you trade. You make a trade. I think the team can stay... Um, afloat with without him for the time being. He'll come back, work him into playing time, and then you'll be good to go. But the problem is, grade 3 sprain, even if it's not a grade 3 ankle sprain, right? Like, ankles are goofy. They can last longer, even if it's not a grade 3 ankle sprain. And then, of course, the fact that it is a grade 3 makes this more likely. There's a chance he could be out for the season. There's a chance he could be out, like, all summer, too. Like, he could still be rehabbing when next season starts. If you're getting, essentially, the further you're getting closer to the worst end of a recovery scenario, the more likely, the more on board I'd be with making a trade. Um, And, essentially, the tipping point would be, if you think, if they think realistically Reggie Jackson could get back and be ready to go, not just back playing, but be back healthy and ready to go by the time the playoffs come around, then I'd probably lean towards not making a trade. If you think that his season is over, then I'm leaning towards making a trade. And, um, you know, it's hard to really say exactly how hard you're pushing for each of those. So, like, if you think he's going to be back by the playoffs but it's going to be close, then you're at the very least sniffing around options. Like, you're kind of sending out feelers. But if he's out for a long time, then you're actively, you know, if his season is done, then you're actively trying to make a trade. Um, And we're just going to run quickly through some of the options for people to make trades for. Um, One, George Hill would make some amount of sense. Um, He's in Sacramento, of course. 
Sacramento, very, very bad, and rebuilding, so there would be some attractiveness to them for a younger player on the Pistons, and um, George Hill is a starting caliber player. Uh, the plus side, once again, is that George Hill, starting caliber player, um, his value is probably not particularly high. The Kings don't have a whole lot of use for him, given that they've got De'Aaron Fox, and they probably want to, they should probably be trying to develop him more. And, you know, they're not winning anything right now, so George Hill isn't really helping them, and he's obviously not a part of a rebuild. He's over 30 years old already, I think. Is he 30? I'm not going to bother to look it up. He's, he's old enough that he's obviously not going to be a part of the rebuild. So there's that. Um, and so his value wouldn't be that high, and he's probably and he's a pretty good starting caliber point guard. The issue with him is that he's been awful this season. <laughs> like, just the reality, he has been really, really bad this year. Um, there's the general consensus seems to be that it's just because he's just kind of not happy playing on such a terrible team and whatnot, and he's not getting necessarily consistent minutes or whatever, but he's really just not playing well. No one, and Zach Lowe's brought it up a few times this year, that, like, no one's entirely sure what exactly George Hill is doing in Sacramento. Like, he's just kind of going through the motions. He's not playing particularly hard. He's been super passive. Just not a good look, and... Even though common wisdom seems to be that, oh, he's just basically not playing well because he doesn't care because Sacramento is bad. And if he played on a better team, he'd be able to be back into form. But there should be at least a little bit of worry about that. The other problem with George Hill is that, um, you know, it's not abundantly clear how long-term a solution he would be as a player. Um... Whoops, that wasn't what I meant to do. Um, Is that it's not abundantly clear how long-term a solution he'd be. He's 31 years old. So, you know, that's not super old, but he's certainly not young. And the Pistons are, even now, they're still a pretty young team. Um, On the plus side, of course, on top of that is that... um, And, yeah, so he's on that. And he's on a three-year contract with the Kings. So, and he's actually even more expensive than Reggie Jackson is. So you're not getting any salary relief for a guy who's older and is maybe probably not even better than, um, oh, on one side um, with his contract, the three-year contract, um, the last year only $1 million is guaranteed. So if they wanted to get rid of him after that, after next year they could. Um, but essentially the worry is that you'd be trading for a guy who's older and probably not even better than Reggie Jackson when Reggie Jackson's healthy. Um, on the plus side, he could be a really good fit into the Pistons' offense, the motion offense. He's a good shooter. He's a good defender. Um, you know, that's the kind of offense that he really would do well in. So I'd be, I'd be hesitant just because of the salary cap situation. Once again, he's making even more money than Reggie Jackson is, and he's older and just, I have, I'd have trouble trading, you know, for a guy who's making more money older and worse than the guy you have now. Um, and then also there's the worry that what if he actually just is uninterested, he got his big payday, and he's just going to kind of be a passive player the rest of, like, I, I don't know that that's all that likely, but it's possible. So just, I'd be a little worried about that. But that's an option. If they got him, I think he probably would be a pretty good fit with the Pistons, given the way that they're running a motion offense now. And he's a starting caliber player who probably would not necessarily command a huge return. I would guess the Pistons could get him for not that much. The problem would be, once again, with George Hill's salary, the Pistons would have to figure out a way to finagle their way around that. Another option that's been very popularly brought up is Kemba Walker. And um, I'm going to say for my part... I don't think that's going to happen um, because I just I don't see Charlotte trading him, just to be totally honest. Um, guy is a really important part of their team. He's hugely popular there. They just they love him there. They absolutely love him, and I, I just don't see them trading him. The, I, I think that they, he's a guy that the Hornets want to make a Hornet for life. That's the sort of player I think he is and the way he meet what he means to that franchise. 
And he's young enough that even if they sort of tear this team down and rebuild, he's young enough that he could stick around for whatever the next version of the team is. And on top of that, I don't think that they're ready to admit that this team isn't good enough to do anything. And probably rightfully so. They could still turn it around this year even. So I'd just i be surprised if they gave up enough on this team this year to trade him at the deadline. I just, I'd be surprised. Now, that said, if they did, he's pretty stinking good. I'd take him, of course. He'd be an upgrade on Reggie Jackson. He's the same age. I don't, he might be a little bit younger even. I think he's pretty much the same age. He's better at pretty much everything than Jackson is. Um, that'd be a great trade. The problem, of course, would be it'd take a pretty big ransom. If Kemba Walker comes out on the trade market, there will be a lot of people who are there will be a lot of people who are suitors for him, and he'd be pretty valuable. And I'm not sure if the Pistons would have the right packages, right packages would be able to put together a package that would be competitive with other teams. So that'd be the biggest worry. And on top of that, I just I would be surprised if the Hornets put him on the trade market this year. My my guess is that if the Hornets decide to totally tear it down and restart, they would do it after this year. And then, so potentially, he could become available for trade this offseason. But I would be surprised if he became available this year just because I, I don't, I just don't see it. I think that he is too important to that team, that franchise, too loved there. I think they're going to hold on to him. Then the next option people have thrown around is Dennis Schroeder. Um, this actually, I think, is probably, excuse me, probably one of the more likely options, to be honest. Um, the Hawks obviously are terrible. <laughs> um, Schroeder is not terrible. He's young enough. He's only 24, so he's young enough that he could maybe be around still um, when this current rebuild starts to turn around. Um, but that said, he's not super young. So he they certainly, I would guess, they would be open to... Um, trading him. I doubt that they put him like out on the block, but they're probably at least listening. On top of that, he's on a fairly reasonable salary, $15.5 million a year. That is a long-term salary, but you know, it's not a huge one. It's through 2020-2021. That's how long his um, contract is. So, including this year, got four years, three beyond this year. Um, and he's a good player. He's good in the right ways. He's a really good pick-and-roll ball handler. Very fast, he can score, get buckets. Not a great shooter, but sort of passable. Um, the main worry with that would be, first off, I'm not sure that the Pistons would be able to put together a effective package um, that would really intrigue um, the Hawks enough. Because the Pistons, probably the Pistons' best young asset is Luke Kennard right now. And I don't think that I want to trade Luke Kennard to get off Reggie Jackson's contract and get another shooting, a, a new point guard back. And um, I'm not sure that the Hawks would be all that interested in Stanley Johnson or Henry Ellenson. Um, they'd probably have some interest in both of them, but I don't know if that's enough to swing the meter. And once again, just like Kemba Walker, if Schroeder comes out onto the market, he likely will have several other suitors, and I'm just not sure if the Pistons can make a um, can make a competitive enough offer to get him. But he is an option that I like better than some of the other ones because he's a fairly provenly good player, and his contract isn't that bad. Um, the biggest worry with him is that he's apparently like a total dick. Like every, it's pretty widely accepted. No one really likes him. Um, just not a easy guy to have around. Obviously, some of those same things are true with Reggie Jackson, but it's even more so with Dennis Schroeder. So it's not necessarily the biggest worry, but it's something. So, yeah, so that's with Schroeder. Um, and then the other one people brought up a lot is Alfred Payton. Uh, he intrigues me. I like Alfred Payton as a player still. I think he could still be good. And it, this one actually could make some sense because... The Magic may have possibly become sort of, quote-unquote, disenchanted with Alfred Payton, if that makes sense. They've sort of, it's entirely possible they've given him his chance and it hasn't worked out. And they're ready to move on. 
right? But I don't think that they want to restart. They've got Aaron Gordon. Aaron Gordon is playing really well. He's probably about to get paid. Evan Fournier has already gotten paid. Like, I think the Magic want to try and win next year. So within that, if they if the trade deadline comes around, they're still they've got a terrible roster. This year is derailed by injuries. Okay, not terrible roster, a terrible record. This year essentially is derailed by injuries. Then they could say, Alfred Payton is good, but we don't think he's the point guard of the future. We don't want to pay him. But and we're gonna basically tank the rest of this year. Trade for Reggie Jackson, let him sit out the rest of the year, comes back next year healthy, and then they can compete. And then the Pistons get a guy who can replace Jackson's starting caliber player, probably. I don't know that Peyton is good enough to really make it worthwhile, but he's probably the guy that it would make the most sense for a straight point guard swap, essentially, which would potentially mean the Pistons wouldn't have to make a really painful um, parting of ways to, so like they wouldn't have to part with one of the young guys or a draft pick, or, well, a good draft pick, to where they could get him. And that's the reason why that makes the most sense in that regard, I think. Um, and, you know, Peyton is an interesting player. He he can score pretty effectively. Um, he's not a good shooter, but he can score inside pretty well. I think his true shooting percentage this year is pretty good. Um, what is it at? His true shooting percentage at 55.2%. That's a pretty good mark. Only 12 points per game. But he can score a little bit. He's a good passer. And he's shown an ability to be a good defender. Um, he's not always focused and locked in enough at times as a defender, but he's shown some ability in that way. And over the past two years, for what it's worth, he's not a high-volume shooter, but he's sort of found a workable enough three-point shot to where he can hit open three-point shot. Oh, last year, not the case. This year, he's shooting 36% from three this year. on only 1.7 attempts per game, but if that can be a real thing... Like, you could maybe make it work. I don't know for sure how effective it would be, but if Jackson is out for the year and they know, and the Pistons know that, I would definitely want to sniff around Alfred Payton because you could maybe get a deal that is pretty much a straight point guard swap in that situation, and that would be the most desirable way to do it. That would also help them. He's younger than Jackson is, so it would help them get younger. He's about He's just a little bit younger than Andre Drummond is, so he's a little bit more on the timeline with the rest of the team. He, as just, once again, just a little bit younger than Andre Drummond and Tobias Harris. So you've got your three top players, quote-unquote top players, at the same um, age. And then ideally, he doesn't get a huge payday on his next contract. Probably, I don't know what he'll command on the open market. It'll depend on how he plays the rest of the year, I would guess. But, you know, basically, he would make some amount of sense. I don't know if it would work long-term with him. Um, there's a reason why the Magic may be disenchanted with him. It may well be that he's just not quite good enough to really work as a starting point guard, but there's enough there that I'd be interested in it. Um, and then with all of these, the thing that would you should keep in mind is that a third team may be required because like some of these rebuilding teams, like the Kings, for instance, or the Hawks, they probably don't have a whole lot of desire to take Reggie Jackson. Um, and he's older, he's not young, and he's not old, obviously, but he's not gonna, he's not young enough to be a part of a rebuild, and he's also, um, and he's also got a pretty big contract for several more years, so he's not an easy thing to swallow. Um, so look for potentially a third team. So, like, if the Pistons decide to trade with a non-Magic team, um, I would potentially look at the Magic to be involved as a third team, um... I would also look at potentially the Denver Nuggets to be involved as a third team, or possibly even the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, I, obviously, the Mavericks have Dennis Smith Jr., but it's no secret they want to compete. They want to compete, and Reggie Jackson would help them compete in the longer term. Uh, the Knicks would also be an option there. I don't know how realistic the Knicks or Magic or the Knicks or Maverick would be because they've got young point guards in place, but I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, the Nets might be a possibility, although Spencer Dinwiddie's playing really well. But basically, I wouldn't be surprised if a third team would be required because most of the good options for um, most of the good options for the team for players for the Pistons to get um, are not good options for Reggie Jackson to go to. And if you're trading for another point guard, you're probably not keeping Reggie Jackson.
right? Like, that's just the reality. Um, one possibility where that would not be the case would be with the Clippers if the Pistons decide to try and go after either Lou Williams or Austin Rivers. Um, both of those guys are kind of, particularly Lou Williams, are kind of shooting guards. They're at the at best, they're combo guards. Neither of them are really true point guards. But if the Clippers decide, no, they're almost back up to five hundred. So I don't know how willing they'd be to do this. But if the Clippers decide, you know what, we're gonna let this season go essentially. And we're going to try again next year, basically. Or maybe they trade DeAndre Jordan, too. They're like, full rebuild, restarting, okay? Then either Lou Williams or um, Austin Rivers could be options for the Pistons to trade for lesser things. And then um, and then um, <clears throat> for lesser things. And then sort of have them fill in as starters for a while. And then after that, they could be slot into being, you know, sort of just rotation players, whether off the bench or as starters. So, like, for instance, let's say you trade for Austin Rivers, okay? Let me bring up his contract a sec, okay? So, he's a guy, he can sort of take, um, he can sort of take on the starting point guard role for a while. He, not ideal, but he can do it. And then Reggie Jackson comes back eventually. And so he's got this year and then next year. Next year is a player option. I'm guessing he takes it. Then next year, he's insurance for then if Avery Bradley leaves, then you've got insurance for another guy who's a shooting guard. Once again, that wouldn't necessarily make the most sense because now you've got the same issue that you, you've got too many shooting guards, essentially. But maybe you now can trade Langston Galloway or do something else. But basically, that would be an option. Lou Williams would be the same thing. And I think Lou Williams is an expiring. Let me double check that though. Is Lou Williams an expiring? Bear with me a moment. Probably should have had this up before I started all this, but YOLO. Um, yeah, he's an expiring this year. So that actually would be a really intriguing option as a guy who the Pistons could maybe trade for um not not have to give up that much for. So you trade for him. He fills in as sort of this, I don't know how I feel about him being the starting point guard, but at the very least, he can give you really, he can give you minutes at point guard, right? As a combo guard, not ideal, but he can give you minutes there sort of. And then once Reggie Jackson hopefully comes back then he can move into his sort of classic sixth man role. And then after this year, you let him go. And as long as you didn't give up too much for him, you go, okay, thanks for coming. You helped keep us afloat this year. Thanks for coming around peace out. That could work out too. So those are kind of the options that I see with that. And um, we have crossed the hour mark, so we're going to call that good. Um, the Pistons' next game is against the Sixers. Uh, just an FYI, there will probably not be a recap of that game because I'll be at the Red Wings game that night. But um, yeah, so all in all, two games without Reggie Jackson looks okay right now. It's not going to be pretty without him, but I think I'm still feeling okay about it. So, yeah, um, go Pistons. Stay beautiful, everybody.